This is the preface and chapter one of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Greenman. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Preface and Chapter One. Preface. The ungentle laws and customs touched upon in this tale are historical, and the episodes which are used to illustrate them are also historical. It is not pretended that these laws and customs existed in England in the sixth century. No, it is only pretended that inasmuch as they existed in the English and other civilizations of far later times, it is safe to consider that it is no libel upon the sixth century to suppose them to have been in practice in that day also. One is quite justified in inferring that whatever one of these laws or customs was lacking in that remote time, its place was competently filled by a worse one. The question as to whether there is such a thing as divine right of kings is not settled in this book. It was found too difficult. That the executive head of a nation should be a person of lofty character and extraordinary ability was manifest and indisputable. That none but the deity could select that head unerringly was also manifest and indisputable. That the deity ought to make that selection then was likewise manifest and indisputable. Consequently, that he does make it as claimed was an unavoidable deduction. I mean, until the author of this book encountered the Pompadour and Lady Castlemaine and some other executive heads of that kind, these were found so difficult to work into the scheme that it was judged better to take the other tack in this book, which must be issued this fall, and then go into training and settle the question in another book. It is, of course, a thing which ought to be settled, and I am not going to have anything particular to do next winter anyway. Mark Twain, Hartford, July 21, 1889 A Word of Explanation It was in Warwick Castle that I came across the curious stranger whom I am going to talk about. He attracted me by three things—his candid simplicity, his marvelous familiarity with ancient armor— and the restfulness of his company, for he did all the talking. We fell together, as modest people will, in the tale of the herd that was being shown through, and he at once began to say things which interested me. As he talked along, softly, pleasantly, flowingly, he seemed to drift away imperceptibly out of this world and time, and into some remote era and old forgotten country and so he gradually wove such a spell about me that I seemed to move among the specters and shadows and dust and mold of a gray antiquity, holding speech with a relic of it, exactly as I would speak of my nearest personal friends or enemies or my most familiar neighbors he spoke of Sir Bedivere, Sir Bors de Granis, Sir Lancelot of the Lake, Sir Galahad, and all the other great names of the table round, and how old, old, unspeakably old, and faded, and dry, and musty, and ancient he came to look as he went on. Presently he turned to me and said, just as one might speak of the weather, or any other common matter, 
you know about transmigration of souls do you know about transposition of epochs and bodies i said i had not heard of it he was so little interested just as when people speak of the weather that he did not notice whether i made him any answer or not there was half a moment of silence immediately interrupted by the droning voice of the salaried cicerone ancient hauberk date of the sixth century time of king arthur and the round table said to have belonged to the knight sir sagramor le desireux observe the round hole through the chain mail in the left breast can't be accounted for supposed to have been done with a bullet since invention of firearms perhaps maliciously by cromwell's soldiers my acquaintance smiled not a modern smile but one that must have gone out of general use many many centuries ago and muttered apparently to himself wit ye well i saw it done then after a pause added i did it myself by the time i had recovered from the electric surprise of this remark he was gone all that evening i sat by my fire at the warwick arms steeped in a dream of the olden time while the rain beat upon the windows and the wind roared about the eaves and corners from time to time i dipped into old sir thomas mallory's enchanting book and fed at its rich feast of prodigies and adventures breathed in the fragrance of its obsolete names and dreamed again midnight being come at length i read another tale for a nightcap this which here follows to wit how sir launcelot slew two giants and made a castle free anon withal came there upon him two great giants well armed all save the heads with two horrible clubs in their hands sir launcelot put his shield afore him and put the stroke away of the one giant and with his sword he clave his head asunder when his fellow saw that he ran away as he were wood demented for fear of the horrible strokes and sir launcelot after him with all his might and smote him on the shoulder and clave him to the middle then sir launcelot went into the hall and there came afore him threescore ladies and damsels and all kneeled unto him and thanked god and him of their deliverance for sir said they the most part of us have been here this seven year their prisoners and we have worked all manner of silk works for our meat and we are all great gentlewomen born and blessed be the time knight that ever thou wert born for thou hast done the most worship that ever did knight in the world that will we bear record and we all pray you to tell us your name that we may tell our friends who delivered us out of prison fair damsels he said my name is sir launcelot du lake and so he departed from them and betaught them unto god and then he mounted unto his horse and rode into many strange and wild countries and through many waters and valleys and evil was he lodged and at the last by fortune him happened against a knight to come to a fair courtelage and therein he found an old gentlewoman that lodged him with a good will and there he had good cheer for him and his horse and when time was his host brought him into a fair garret over the gate to his bed there sir launcelot unarmed him and set his harness by him and went to bed and anon he fell on sleep so soon after there came one on horseback and knocked at the gate in great haste 
and when sir launcelot heard this he rose up and looked out at the window and saw by the moonlight three knights come riding after that one man and all three lashed on him at once with swords and that one knight turned on them knightly again and defended him truly said sir launcelot yonder one knight shall i help for it were shame for me to see three knights on one and if he be slain i am partner of his death and therewith he took his harness and went out at a window by a sheet down to the four knights and then sir launcelot said on high turn you knights unto me and leave your fighting with that knight and then they all three left sir kay and turned unto sir launcelot and there began great battle for they alight all three and strake many strokes at sir launcelot and assailed him on every side then sir kay dressed him for to have holpen sir launcelot nay sir said he i will none of your help therefore as ye will have my help let me alone with them sir kay for the pleasure of the knight suffered him for to do his will and so stood aside and then anon within six strokes sir launcelot had stricken them to the earth and then they all three cried sir knight we yield us unto you as man of might matchless as to that said sir launcelot i will not take your yielding unto me but so that ye yield you unto sir kay the seneschal on that covenant i will save your lives and else not fair knight said they that were we loath to do for as for sir kay we chased him hither and had overcome him had ye not been therefore to yield us unto him it were no reason well as to that said sir launcelot advise you well for ye may choose whether ye will die or live for an ye be yielden it shall be unto sir kay fair knight then they said in saving our lives we will do as thou commandest then shall ye said sir launcelot on whitsunday next coming go unto the court of king arthur and there shall ye yield you unto queen guinevere and put you all three in her grace and mercy and say that sir kay sent you thither to be her prisoners on the morn sir launcelot arose early and left sir kay sleeping and sir launcelot took sir kay's armor and his shield and armed him and so he went to the stable and took his horse and took his leave of his host and so he departed then soon after arose sir kay and missed sir launcelot and then he espied that he had his armor and his horse now by my faith i know well that he will grieve some of the court of king arthur for on him knights will be bold and deem that it is i and that will beguile them and because of his armor and shield i am sure i shall ride in peace and then soon after departed sir kay and thanked his host as i laid the book down there was a knock at the door and my stranger came in i gave him a pipe and a chair and made him welcome i also comforted him with a hot scotch whiskey gave him another one then still another hoping always for his story after a fourth persuader he drifted into himself and in a quite simple and natural way the stranger's history i am an american i was born and reared in hartford in the state of connecticut anyway just over the river in the country so i am a yankee of the yankees and practical yes and nearly barren of sentiment i suppose or poetry in other words my father was a blacksmith my uncle was a horse doctor and i was both along at first then i went over to the great arms factory and learned my real trade 
learned all there was to it, learned to make everything—guns, revolvers, cannon, boilers, engines, all sorts of labor-saving machinery. Why, I could make anything a body wanted, anything in the world. It didn't make any difference what. And if there wasn't any quick, new-fangled way to make a thing, I could invent one, and do it as easy as rolling off a log. I became head superintendent, had a couple of thousand men under me. Well, a man like that is a man that is full of fight. That goes without saying. With a couple of thousand rough men under one, one has plenty of that sort of amusement. I had, anyway. At last I met my match, and I got my dose. It was during a misunderstanding conducted with crowbars with a fellow we used to call Hercules. He laid me out with a crusher alongside the head that made everything crack, and seemed to spring every joint in my skull, and made it overlap its neighbor. Then the world went out in darkness, and I didn't feel anything more, and didn't know anything at all—at least for a while. When I came to again, I was sitting under an oak-tree on the grass, with a whole beautiful and broad country landscape all to myself, nearly—not entirely, for there was a fellow on a horse looking down at me, a fellow fresh out of a picture-book. He was in old-time iron armor from head to heel, with a helmet on his head the shape of a nail-keg with slits in it, and he had a shield, and a sword, and a prodigious spear, and his horse had armor on too and a steel-horn projecting from his forehead, and gorgeous red and green silk trappings that hung down all around him like a bed-quilt, nearly to the ground. "'Fair sir, will ye just?' said this fellow. "'Will I which? Will ye try a passage of arms for land or lady or for—' "'What are you giving me?' I said. "'Get along back to your circus, or I'll report you.' Now, what does this man do but fall back a couple of hundred yards, and then come rushing at me as hard as he could tear, with his nail-keg bent down nearly to his horse's neck, and his long spear pointed straight ahead? I saw he meant business, so I was up the tree when he arrived. He allowed that I was his property, the captive of his spear. There was argument on his side, and the bulk of the advantage, so I judged it best to humor him. We fixed up an agreement whereby I was to go with him, and— he was not to hurt me. I came down, and we started away, I walking by the side of his horse. We marched comfortably along, through glades and over brooks, which I could not remember to have seen before, which puzzled me and made me wonder, and yet we did not come to any circus or sign of a circus, so I gave up the idea of a circus, and concluded he was from an asylum. But we never came to an asylum, so I was up a stump as you may say. I asked him how far we were from Hartford. He said he had never heard of the place, which I took to be a lie, but allowed it to go at that. At the end of an hour we saw a far-away town sleeping in a valley by a winding river, and beyond it on a hill a vast gray fortress with towers and turrets, the first I had ever seen out of a picture. "'Bridgeport?' said I, pointing. "'Camelot!' said he. My stranger had been showing signs of sleepiness. He caught himself nodding now, and smiled one of those pathetic, obsolete smiles of his, and said, "'I find I can't go on, but come with me. I've got it all written out, and you can read it, if you like.' In his chamber he said, First I kept a journal. Then, by and by, after years, I took the journal and turned it into a book. How long ago that was!' 
He handed me his manuscript, and pointed out the place where I should begin. "'Begin here. I've already told you what goes before.' He was steeped in drowsiness by this time. As I went out at his door, I heard him murmur sleepily, "'Give you good den, fair sir.' I sat down by my fire and examined my treasure. The first part of it, the great bulk of it, was parchment and yellow with age. I scanned a leaf particularly, and saw that it was a palimpsest. Under the old dim writing of the Yankee historian appeared traces of a penmanship which was older and dimmer still, Latin words and sentences, fragments from old monkish legends, evidently. I turned to the place indicated by my stranger, and began to read as follows. THE TALE OF THE LOST LAND CHAPTER One, CAMELOT CAMELOT, CAMELOT, said I to myself, I don't seem to remember hearing of it before. Name of the asylum, likely. It was a soft, reposeful summer landscape, as lovely as a dream, and as lonesome as Sunday. The air was full of the smell of flowers, and the buzzing of insects, and the twittering of birds, and there were no people, no wagons, there was no stir of life, nothing going on. The road was mainly a winding path with hoof-prints in it, and now and then a faint trace of wheels on either side in the grass wheels that apparently had a tire as broad as one's hand. Presently a fair slip of a girl, about ten years old, with a cataract of golden hair streaming down over her shoulders, came along. Around her head she wore a hoop of flame-red poppies. It was as sweet an outfit as I ever saw, what there was of it. She walked indolently along with a mind at rest, its peace reflected in her innocent face. The circus-man paid no attention to her, didn't even seem to see her, and she, she was no more startled at his fantastic make-up than if she was used to his like every day of her life. She was going by as indifferently as she might have gone by a couple of cows, but when she happened to notice me, then there was a change. Up went her hands, and she was turned to stone. Her mouth dropped open, her eyes stared wide and timorously, she was the picture of astonished curiosity touched with fear. And there she stood gazing, in a sort of stupefied fascination, till we turned a corner of the wood, and were lost to her view. That she should be startled at me instead of at the other man was too many for me. I couldn't make head or tail of it and that she should seem to consider me a spectacle, and totally overlook her own merits in that respect, was another puzzling thing, and a display of magnanimity, too, that was surprising in one so young. There was food for thought here. I moved along as one in a dream. As we approached the town, signs of life began to appear. At intervals we passed a wretched cabin with a thatched roof, and about it small fields and garden patches in an indifferent state of cultivation. There were people, too, brawny men with long, coarse, uncombed hair that hung down over their faces and made them look like animals. They and the women, as a rule, wore a coarse tow-linen robe that came well below the knee, and a rude sort of sandal, and many wore an iron collar. The small boys and girls were always naked, but nobody seemed to know it. All of these people stared at me, talked about me, ran into the huts and fetched out their families to gape at me, and nobody ever noticed that other fellow, except to make him humble salutation and get no response for their pains. 
In the town were some substantial windowless houses of stone scattered among a wilderness of thatched cabins. The streets were mere crooked alleys and unpaved. Troops of dogs and nude children played in the sun and made life and noise. Hogs roamed and rooted contentedly about, and one of them lay in a reeking wallow in the middle of the main thoroughfare and suckled her family. Presently there was a distant blare of military music. It came nearer, still nearer, and soon a noble cavalcade wound into view, glorious with plumed helmets and flashing mail and flaunting banners and rich doublets and horse-cloths and gilded spearheads, and through the muck and swine and naked brats and joyous dogs and shabby huts it took its gallant way, and in its wake we followed followed through one winding alley and then another and climbing always climbing till at last we gained the breezy height where the huge castle stood there was an exchange of bugle blasts then a parley from the walls where men-at-arms in hauberk and morion marched back and forth with halbert at shoulder under flapping banners with the rude figure of a dragon displayed upon them and then the great gates were flung open the drawbridge was lowered and the head of the cavalcade swept forward under the frowning arches, and we, following, soon found ourselves in a great paved court, with towers and turrets stretching up into the blue air on all four sides. And all about us the dismount was going on, and much greeting and ceremony, and running to and fro, and a gay display of moving and intermingling colors, and an altogether pleasant stir and noise and confusion. End of Preface and Chapter 1